You're listening to Workplace Perspective, an employment law podcast raising the bar at workplaces everywhere. Workplace Perspective is a regular podcast series for employers and employees focusing on education, training, and the law to help organizations of all sizes develop and maintain successful workplace relationships. The opinions expressed by guests on Workplace Perspective are their own and should not be considered legal advice. And now, here's your host, Teresa McQueen. Thank you, James. And welcome, everyone, to Workplace Perspective, where we are striving to raise the bar at workplaces everywhere. Today, we are talking about addressing and overcoming resistance to diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives by gaining a better understanding of what's driving that resistance. It's going to be a great show. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Workplace Perspective has a new website. Visit us at www.workplaceperspective.com. Check out our new look, including our featured guests and archive sections. Share us with your friends and colleagues to help us continue to raise the bar at workplaces everywhere. Welcome back to our listeners and welcome to Workplace Perspective, Eric Schumann and Eric Knowles. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. I'm really excited to talk about this DEI topic and... I want to first start out, though, by having you tell our guests a little bit about who you are and what you do. Eric Schumann, let's let's start with you. Thanks for having us here. I'm a postdoctoral researcher at New York University and Harvard Business School. And I recently completed my PhD at Hebrew University and the University of Groningen. And broadly, I research the psychology of social change, both looking at the psychology of protest and social movements, but also the psychology of resistance to social change among historically advantaged groups. Yeah, and uh, my name is Eric Knowles. I'm an associate professor of psychology at New York University, where I primarily research topics in intergroup relations and political psychology. And like Eric Schumann, I'm very interested in the topic of how members of advantaged social groups sort of navigate their uh, privilege. All right. Well, your article on the research that you've done on overcoming resistance to DEI initiatives, which we're of course going to post on our on your episode page, just really caught my eye. With such an increase in DEI awareness and resistance, right, in so many areas of our lives, I just thought it would be a great conversation to have to sort of give our listeners a little insight and hopefully some guidance on the issue. So. Let's first start by talking about the research, your research in particular, and why people tend to resist social change when it comes to DEI. Yeah, so I think the kind of center, central idea behind our research is that resistance also often stems from some sort of threat to the self. So people are trying to protect uh, themselves and their ideas of themselves and in various domains, whether it's feeling that they're competent are feeling that they have high status, or feeling like that they're good moral people. And when these aspects of themselves are threatened, it can provoke resistance to whatever is inducing the threat, in this case, social change or DEI initiatives. So this is kind of the, the central idea is that there's some sort of threat that's triggering resistance. Let's talk about the types of threats. I mean, I think one of the ones you just kind of mentioned that sort of, I think we see a lot is this idea that if I and I'm probably not going to articulate this better. I'll let you guys articulate it. This idea that if I acknowledge this, somehow it's 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 a negative impact on me, that I'm not aware enough, or 
I'm not doing something that I should be doing when maybe I am. And being asked to participate in some way in a group setting might put me on edge a little bit or put me on the defense. Is that kind of what you're one of the things that you're you're sort of finding? Yeah, I, I think so. This is Eric Knowles. Um, I think, you know, these threats can come in different forms, like DEI initiatives are frequently construed as um, increasing equality and equity within organizations and within society more broadly. And that can um, threaten uh, members of advantaged groups in, in different ways, kind of more material ways and more psychological ways. And the material side, sometimes, you know, we tend to see the world as very zero sum. And so if you lift up one group, it can feel like, well, that's necessarily coming at the cost of my group, potentially as an advantaged group member. That's what we call status threat. But more, I think, insidiously, it can also create a sense that one's competence is being called into question. So DEI initiatives are often justified by the fact that certain groups um, tend to have advantages in society. And getting white people, white men in particular, to countenance the possibility that they experience those advantages can be tough because sometimes it lands as a bit of an accusation Kind of like, well, you're telling me that I haven't gotten here for my own merit, that I had a leg up simply because of my demographic characteristics. And then that's this more psychological um, threat that we call merit threat. It's, as Eric Schumann put it, like a threat to my sense of my own competence. And what are some of the other threats that you sort of found, the ways that you found people reacting to uh, DEI initiatives? Another one that Eric Knowles uh, didn't get to mention that I think you were asking about earlier as well is this idea of of moral threat or moral image threat. And this is basically the idea that part of our idea or conception of ourselves as kind of moral people is also based on the groups that we belong to. So if we belong to groups that are seen as moral, this reflects kind of back on us. And so when DEI initiatives talk about, you know, the fact that there have been historical injustices in society and inequities in societies, and these have benefited one group over another, and I belong to that group that's benefited from these injustices, even if I don't feel like I've ever kind of personally contributed to them, that kind of belonging and membership in a group that has kind of seems to tarnish my own moral character, and this can cause resistance sometimes. Sometimes it can actually also cause like willingness to do something, but it kind of puts members of these groups in kind of a tricky position where acknowledging their membership in that group could tarnish their kind of sense of themselves as moral people. So this is the, the other main threat besides the, the merit threat. So there's merits, there's a merit threat that comes up, there's a moral threat. This one you just mentioned is how did you term it? status threat, or I mean, this is what Eric was talking about at the beginning of his last answer. So this kind of more concern for material resources that perhaps if we're making these changes, it means it's going to come at the expense of things that, that I have in terms of kind of jobs, resources, etc. And was there anything else that you discovered, any sort of types of behaviors that, that uh, came to the fore in your research? So, yeah, so we also looked at kind of how people react to these threats. Um, and kind of categorize three main different types of reactions depending on which threats people experience. So for people who experience mainly this status threat about material resources and this fear that um, making changes is going to come at the cost, things that they have or things that their group has, 
these people primarily try to defend against um, DEI initiatives, meaning they try to justify or legitimize the way things are right now and argue that there's no need for any changes, that any kind of gaps or inequalities or evidence of bias like are actually justified um, the way it is. Uh, for people who experience both this kind of status threat, but also this more merit-based threat to the sense that acknowledging that there's advantage or structural bias kind of calls into question their merits, they're more likely to just simply deny the existence of any inequality or inequity or bias if this kind of combats both of these threats. Um, and so their resistance is often expressed as this, this flat-out denial that there's a problem whatsoever. And then for people who experience both the merit threat and this more moral-based threat, they're more likely to distance from the problem. So they try to say, like, yes, there might be an issue, but it's not something I personally have benefited from or it's not something I personally have contributed to. And so it's not really my responsibility to solve. Um, and so that's how resistance is expressed for them. Um, so these are the three main types of resistance we find, defend, deny, and distance. And tell me, I'm going to say Dr. Knowles, because that I can differentiate a little easier. So uh -huh. I'll do Dr. Schumann, Dr. Knowles. So, <laughs> so t tell me a little bit about on your research, like who are you, who are you researching? Who, who contributed to the data that you collected? Who are you looking at? Who are you talking to? Give us a little background on that. Well, our data that, that kind of support this theory come from a variety of data sources, um, but primarily community samples. Uh, I would say largely everyday working folks who haven't necessarily been involved in DEI initiatives, but are in some ways the candidate populations for these kinds of initiatives. Some of them have undoubtedly taken part in diversity initiatives at their organizations, but Others may not have, but are nonetheless people who we can study and kind of test theories about these different kinds of threats. Okay. Well, we're just about at our halfway point. So let's do this. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, I want to sort of dive into these reactions and maybe talk a little bit about some practicalities on what, what companies and what people themselves can do to sort of recognize and address these um to sort of knock down that resistance. So stay with us. We'll be right back. Bringing our country and community together. Start a meaningful conversation at lovehasnolabels.com slash one small step. A message from StoryCorps, Love Has No Labels, and the Ad Council. If you enjoyed today's show, do this. Share us. Like us. Give us a review on your favorite podcast app. It means a lot to us, and it ensures more people tune in and raise the bar at workplaces everywhere. All right. Welcome back, everyone. We are talking talking with Drs. Schumann and Knowles about addressing and overcoming a resistance to DEI initiatives. So let's talk about some practicalities, um, because I think that in order for, obviously, in order for companies to have successful DEI initiatives, let's talk about the corporate world, right? The workplace. Um, I think it's important to those that are putting on those types of initiatives or backing those initiatives have a really good understanding of the sort of resistance that they are going to encounter and maybe what they can do to to address it uh, and to expect it um, and be able to uh, sort of overcome it. 
in order to make those um, initiatives successful because I, it, it seems to me in every DEI thing that I've ever been a part of, trust is such a huge component of the program. And if you don't have trust with either in the program overall or the initiative overall, or those that are presenting on the particular topic, it's really difficult. And, and I would think it, it, what I've seen now that I've, now that you're putting labels on, you know, that you're identifying these things, not putting labels, but you've identified these behaviors. I can think back to programs I've been to on DEI or whatever. And you always find someone in the crowd. You encounter people who are experiencing these very defense mechanisms. Um, and it is a barrier because you can see they're not getting, they're not benefiting from the broader perspective of the information they're being given because they can't get past the resistance. So I'm going to turn it over to you all. Whoever wants to start first, let's talk about ways to sort of knock down that resistance. Well, Dr. Schumann, maybe I'll start with the, the status threat and then you can talk about like the, the merit threat divide the labor like that. Um, well, so we think that, you know, based on the data we've collected and that others have collected about these psychological threats and their their consequences in terms of those defense mechanisms that you rightly point out, when it comes to status threat, people who are concerned uh, in kind of a zero-sum way that if we engage in these initiatives, which um, increase the opportunities given to traditionally underrepresented or marginalized groups, that that will come at a cost to them as, for instance, white males, is the so-called business case for uh, DEI initiatives. And we don't want to argue that the business case is right for every context, but we think it could be particularly useful for people who are experiencing the status threat reaction. And therefore, as um, as Eric Schumann pointed out, um, defending the inequalities that are present in the organization or denying that they exist, because those are the defense mechanisms that stem from that status threat. And the business case is simply that, um, you know, there's a lot of evidence um, that uh, DEI initiatives are good for organizations in the long run, that they increase market share, that they um, make organizations more nimble and ultimately more profitable. Um, and, and that's frankly why a lot of organizations would engage in them because they are interested in that bottom line. And to the extent that that's the case, it's in everyone's collective interest within the organization to um, become more equitable and distribute opportunities more equally throughout the organization. That can actually help uh, organizations grow um, larger, employ more people, um, spread benefits around collectively. Um, so breaking down that zero-sum mentality that your gain comes at my cost mm -hmm. That's not typically a true assumption, and breaking that down can, as a result, break down some of these status threat-based defenses. So the idea that as I look across an organization, if I'm resistant and I look across my organization and I see those, you know, the benefits of, of work, the promotions, the good, the good opportunities, all of that, if I see that being spread across a more diverse workforce, that's going to give me more security when it comes to that particular threat, right? That's right. That this this is actually something that we are collectively doing as an organization to become a better, stronger, bigger organization. Great. That's a perception issue. I love that. And what what about our other our other threat? 
Yeah, so I think that the Knowles was talking about is really good for, for status threats. This can be really useful with people who defend or deny, but people who deny are also experiencing this merit threat, right? This idea that recognizing kind of inequality and advantage kind of threatens their self, their sense of self-competence. And there's some really interesting research on this technique called self-affirmation that has been shown to be useful for kind of reducing this kind of threat to the self, competence and morality sometimes as well. And I think it's really especially useful to highlight for people exhibiting this deny strategy, because I think our kind of intuitive reaction when we hear somebody denying a problem, especially a problem as severe as inequality and discrimination, is to just kind of lambast them with, you know, more and more facts, right? To say, like, here's all this evidence, right, of, of the, that the problem exists. Um, and I think that the key insight here is that if they're experiencing that evidence as threatening, it doesn't matter how much evidence you pour on, it's probably not going to make a difference. And the idea of self-affirmation is that if you kind of affirm the self in another domain, it kind of makes it, inoculates it to threaten in a way so that people are more able to cope with threatening information. And so if you do this first, before you present all of this, evidence and information that might be threatening, people are going to be more open and more receptive to that information. So now you might be thinking, okay, what is self-affirmation and how right, what do does that it? look like? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so the basic idea, I'll kind of give the basic idea and then maybe think a little bit more about potential ways to apply it. But the way it's usually done in research is people are given a list of values that they might have in their lives. So these could be things like religion, loyalty, friends, caring about friends, family, artistic values, almost anything. They're asked to choose one of them and write about a time in their life sometime where they lived out that value, right? So if I choose the value of being super loyal to a friend, I could write about a time where, you know, a friend called me up and really needed my help and I was maybe in, engaged in something important, but I dropped what I was doing to go help them and thus lived out my value. And what they find is when you kind of go through this process of reflecting on a time where you kind of lived out a value that is is deeply important to your sense of self, it kind of affirms that sense of self and puts you in this mindset where you feel very strong in your sense of self. And then you're not as thrown off by information that might be, be threatening. So this is the general idea. It's a little bit more difficult to think about this in an organizational setting, but I think, you know, one potential example might be if you're going to start a presentation on a DI initiative and why it's necessary, kind of before you present all the information about why it's necessary, maybe kind of walk the audience through some sort of exercise like this to like think about values that are important to them and the organization and how they live those values out in the organization and then tie that into kind of a, a value-based case and then move into these more threatening facts or, or something along these lines. So this would be good for dealing with merit threat, which is experienced both by people who deny and by people who distance. Um, and then for people who distance, there is this other threat that's a kind of more moral threat, which is also interesting because it's a threat that kind of cuts both ways. It can kind of drive resistance to DI initiatives, but it can also motivate people to kind of rehabilitate their moral image, right? That moral image that can make them feel like they need to do something. And so they're sometimes just subtly reframing things instead of talking about DEI as this 
you know, sort of like standard that has been failed and we need to live up to or this obligation, reframing it as a kind of opportunity to live out and demonstrate that we care about these values can help shift that moral threat from something that kind of makes us pull back and draw away to something that kind of motivates us to be involved in the space. So this is really useful for that last overcoming that, that last form of resistance, which is distancing. I really think as you're talking that they all kind of tie together, you know, and your idea about talking at the beginning of a presentation or a training or whatever it might be, reaffirming their values, it seems to address all three sort of issues. Like you get people in that mindset to where they not, you know, they realize their moral worth, their value, perhaps how that, you know, as you said, equates not only in their personal life, but into the company as well. So you make that tie in, you sort of get someone in a frame of mind to to be less threatened by what we're going to talk about, because now they feel more secure in themselves, either, you know, their moral at their status, and the merit that they have. So I, I really see it tying all together. I think that's a great precursor to any, any sort of discussion uh, about DEI. I think that'd be really helpful. I'm getting the wrap up signal. But what I want to do before we go is I want to ask each of you to sort of give us your, your thoughts for the future, any other tips you want to give, or maybe a cautionary tale before we go. So uh, Dr. Knowles, why don't we start with you? I would say that in closing that not all DEI regimes or initiatives are created equal. Some work better than others. And I think one driving motivation behind our work is that they should be based on psychological insights drawn from studies and the data. Like we want a DEI initiatives that are well-grounded in data about um, reactions that people have within these contexts. And how, going back to what you said about trust, like how do you create trust in a room full of people who are going to have a variety of defenses? How do you encourage them to understand that you regard them as people with integrity, that are are, are people who want to be good uh, pro-social organization members? And I think our, our driving sort of motivation here is just to ground that as much as possible in actual empirical data about human psychology. I think that's great advice because it's reality. It's not a company standing back and saying, well, this is what we think. We think maybe this might be it, but then you're biased because you're biased by your own perception. But looking at what what are people actually saying, I think that's fabulous. I think that's great. Thank you so much for that. Dr. Schumann, what about you? Yeah, so I, I think I'll take a slightly different perspective. So my like main tip would just be for people who are actually out there in the world trying to implement these recommendations that we just made and, and DI initiatives in general who are facing resistance from someone, right? To just have this perspective that that resistance is usually coming from some complex psychological place and to try and understand that and, you know, maybe use some of these tips that we've given, but to try and do that perspective taking of why this person is resisting before they combat it. And I think that that will make that resistance more effective. And just to modify that slightly, I guess, too, to also say, right, people working in these areas who know the people they're working with are going to be able to do that better using that knowledge and intuition. And certainly, you know, we hope that the things we've talked about today might be helpful, but there's always some kind of, you know, messiness that happens when you translate some framework like this from kind of academia to the real world. 
Um, so if things don't line up perfectly, you know, it's okay to kind of use your intuition to expand on and adjust some of the recommendations we've made. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for that. Thank you both for joining me. Great topic, great information. I appreciate you both so much. Thanks so Thank much you for having us. That's our show for today. Uh, you can find out more information about Dr. Schumann and Dr. Knowles themselves and their research by visiting our website at workplaceperspective.com. I want to also thank our listeners, My Radio Angels, James and the Nave at Night, and Workplace Perspectives team extraordinaire, our engineer and producer, Paul Roberts, our associate producer, Melissa DeLacy, with music provided by the very talented Stephen Versaloni. So thank you all for joining us on Workplace Perspective, and until next time, keep raising the bar. Keep raising the bar.